Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. And when Jesus returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. We'll end our reading of God's word there. Friends, up to this point in Mark's gospel, we have seen, and in particular we back at Redemption RP Church, but if you're familiar with Mark's gospel, you will recognize as well that we have seen up to this point Jesus' ministry characterized by things such as excitement, popularity, powerful preaching and teaching, miraculous healings, a bit of mystery. But as we move into chapter 2, while these other characteristics that I've just mentioned, uh, those characteristics of Jesus' ministry do not fade into the background, they will remain Something new is introduced here in chapter 2. What is that? It is the element of controversy. Opposition from the religious leaders of the day, an opposition that will eventually culminate in Jesus' execution. Between Mark chapter 2 and verse 1 and several verses into chapter 3, verse 6 to be exact, we read of five successive showdowns between Jesus and his disciples on the one hand and the religious establishment on the other. And by the time we arrive at Mark chapter 3, 
verse 6, which we will not consider in detail today, but by the time we arrive there, we are already reading that the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against Jesus how to destroy him. Why did they want to destroy Jesus? Because in their eyes, Jesus was nothing more than a charlatan, an imposter who blasphemously forgave sinners, who shared meals with despicable sinners and tax collectors, who broke the Sabbath and who taught others to do the same. He's got to be stopped, they said. We're considering the first of these five showdowns between Jesus and the religious leaders today. In fact, the accusation leveled against Jesus, that of blasphemy, will become the precise charge that results in Jesus' eventual crucifixion. Blasphemy. He is blaspheming, verse 7, said the scribes. He's a blasphemer. What led to this accusation exactly? Why was it so serious? And how did Jesus respond to it? We'll consider those questions in turn. In the first place, what led to this accusation against Jesus of being a blasphemer. Well, something that takes place between verses 1 and 6. The accusation comes here in verse 7. The healing only comes uh, to visible expression in verse 12. So it's not the healing. We have already seen that Jesus, uh, earlier in Mark's gospel, uh, we have already seen him heal many, and there is no doubt that the scribes would have been present on those occasions. It's not the healing. So what's happening between verses 1 and 6 that lead up to this accusation of Jesus being a blasphemer? Well, Jesus, we read, had just come back to Capernaum, after some time away. We know that Capernaum was like a home base for Jesus throughout his Galilean ministry. And the home that is referred to here in verse 1 of chapter 2 is very likely, I would say almost positively, the home of Simon and Andrew, the disciples. We know from chapter 1 that it was no secret where Jesus liked to stay when he was in Capernaum. It was at that home. And when news of Jesus' return had reached the ears of the people in Capernaum, we learn that they flocked to the house where Jesus is staying. In fact, Mark tells us that there were so many people in verse 2 here That there was no more room, not even at the door. That's a lot of people. Might say Jesus was under siege. And as Jesus was preaching, 
preaching about the kingdom of God, about the gospel, about repentance and faith, a group of men carrying a paralytic on a stretcher had climbed to the top of this house that Jesus is staying in. They had climbed to the top from the outside. These houses in that day would have had ladders. The roofs were used, uh, often for working, sometimes for sleeping. They were pretty sturdy roofs. And these four men carrying their friend, the paralytic, on a stretcher, climbed up to the top of the house, broke through the roof, and lowered their paralyzed friend into the house for Jesus to see him and heal him. And we read in verse 5 that when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Son, your sins are forgiven. Whoa. Uh Uh-oh. What do we read in verses 6 and 7? Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? That's what led up to this accusation of Jesus being nothing more than a Blasphemer. In the second place, we want to ask and answer this question. Why why was this accusation of blasphemy so serious? Let's take a few moments to consider that. This was a very serious accusation. Very serious. In, uh, or back home at Redemption, we considered several weeks ago, as we considered the passage just before this one, where Jesus heals the the leper, we saw back then that perhaps the most dreaded disease for an Israelite to be diagnosed with was that of leprosy. Had to deal with the physical ramifications. You had to deal with the social stigma You had to deal with the religious stigmatization and uh, separation from the community of God's people. Perhaps the most dreaded disease for an Israelite to be diagnosed with. Or perhaps the most dreaded sin for an Israelite to stand accused of was blasphemy. And these scribes were well aware of that. Who were the scribes? The scribes were what we would call the legal experts of the day. They were specially trained in the law of Moses. It was a closed order 
You had to be admitted through qualifications and the laying on of hands. And they were masters of the written law of Moses. And they were masters of the oral law that interpreted uh, and went beyond and expanded the written law of Moses. And at the time, both of those, the written law and the oral tradition, both of those held authority. These scribes were qualified to speak to the issue of blasphemy. And in Jesus' day, the commonly held understanding or definition of blasphemy was essentially, and uh, I'm quoting another writer here, but essentially, or I'm loosely quoting him, essentially an arrogant and insulting disrespect toward God or his work in the world, either in speech or in action. It was to disrespectfully speak or act in such a way so as to demean or insult God's glorious divine dignity. And one such way that God's glorious divine dignity could be demeaned or insulted was to ascribe things that only God could do to men. Mere mortal men. Because that was to undermine God's unique status and oneness that we have encapsulated in Deuteronomy 6 and verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And this Lord who is one will not share his glory with another. And as far as the scribes were concerned, friends, by taking upon himself the divine prerogative to forgive sins, Jesus had made himself equal to God. And in doing so, according to the scribes, Jesus had insulted the divine glory by debasing and lowering God to the level of mortal men. And that, said the scribes, was blasphemy. A capital offense under the Mosaic Code found in Leviticus 24. Whoever curses his God shall bear his sin. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him. Whoever blasphemes the name shall be put to death. That's why this accusation of blasphemy is so serious. Jesus knows it. On the third and final place, the question we want to consider is this, how did Jesus respond to this accusation, this very serious 
accusation. Well, Jesus knew their hearts, Mark tells us. Jesus knew what they were thinking, what they were accusing him of. In fact, don't we read that Jesus let them know that he knew what they were thinking? Verse 8, immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Now friends, we need to appreciate as we consider how Jesus responds to this accusation, we need to appreciate what Jesus, in fact, does not say. Jesus does not say, Oh, I'm so sorry. I'm afraid you've greatly misunderstood me, most honorable scribes. I can now see how my words, maybe said in haste, could easily be misconstrued and make me look like a blasphemer. I'm so sorry. Let me rephrase that. Jesus says nothing of the sort. What does he say? Well, he meets their question with his own question. Oh, Jesus, so good at penetrating hearts by asking questions. You know, modern uh, or contemporary, uh, might might call behavioral an, uh, behavioral analysts, those who study human behavior and interactions, interrogation techniques, and and all that stuff. I've I've heard them speak of the power of questioning, and the main power of questioning is that it drives focus in the one being questioned. Try that with someone this week, or ask someone to ask you a question, and you see how your focus goes into higher gear. Jesus knows that. Jesus created us. Well, Jesus responds to their question with a question of his own. Verse 9. Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise, Take up your bed and walk. Let's stop there for a moment because it's not the easiest to understand what Jesus is perhaps getting at in asking this question. This seems to be a form of questioning that is rather unique to Jesus in the Gospels. It's a a version of what we call today an, an, an a fortiori argument, an argument from the greatest. Several examples. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one jot or tittle to uh, expire or be dissolved from the law. And this is a a form of that, but it's not quite the same. So let's pause for a few moments and consider what Jesus means when he asks, which is easier To say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven. Or to say, rise, take up your mat or your bed and walk. Well, the more difficult is the latter. The more difficult of the two is not to say your sins are forgiven. Anyone can say that. The more difficult of the two is to actually cause a paralyzed man to stand up and use his legs. 
So the question is, why has Jesus done the easier thing that anyone could do? At least utter the words. Why has Jesus done the easier thing rather than jump right to the hard thing, which is to say, rise, take up your bed and walk, which conceivably no one in that room, apart from him, could do? Well, Jesus says why in verses 10 and 11. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, now here's the harder thing, isn't it? I say to you, rise, take up your bed and walk. Go home. You see, Jesus did the easier thing first. but He did it on purpose because he's about to prove that he can do the harder thing as well. A lot of people came that day to see simply a miracle worker. What's very sad about Capernaum is that Jesus spent so much of his time there, preached so many of his sermons there, did so many of his miracles there. Yet later in Matthew chapter, or if we return to Matthew chapter 11, we would read that he pronounces his second most severest indictment, second next only to Jerusalem, Severest indictment upon a town or a city for their unbelief. Doesn't that show us that you can hear the best sermons from the most powerful preacher, but if God the Holy Spirit doesn't uh, change your heart, you'll walk away still cold and still dead in sin. As many of them ended up uh, succumbing to. But many of them showed up this day looking for a healing or or a miracle and and nothing more. But Jesus is not a one-trick pony. He's not a mere miracle worker. He is the Son of God. And He's taken this opportunity to create space for Himself, so to speak, to teach a very important lesson that they and we must grasp. What is that? It is that our greatest problem is not disease. Our greatest problem is sin. And our deepest need is not healing physically, merely. Our deepest need is God's forgiveness. God's forgiveness. You realize you need nothing more as a sinner who has offended Almighty God by not living your entire life for Him and His glory, by living for yourself. Your greatest need, my greatest need, is God's forgiveness. And Jesus is telling us that he gives it to us. Oh, what a precious thing that forgiveness is. 
you may not appreciate how much you need it, especially you younger ones out there. But I pray and I hope that you, as you grow older and as you learn from your, your parents at home and your family and friends in the church, that the forgiveness of God is an immensely precious thing. God saying, I will not hold your sin against you. I will remove it as far as the east is from the west. What's the proof? Verse 12. And he rose, the paralytic rose, and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. You see, the scribes were right. In that only God can forgive sin. But they couldn't have been more wrong in denying Jesus that divine prerogative. Wasn't blasphemy. For anyone else, yes, it would have been blasphemy. Not for the Son of Man. Has Jesus forgiven your sins against the Holy God? Have you tasted the sweetness of forgiveness? Oh, it's sweet. How do you receive forgiveness from Jesus? Will you do what these men here in our text did with their paralytic friend. You, you get every obstacle out of the way and you come right to Jesus. You interrupt him if you have to. He doesn't mind being interrupted. Does he get mad at them for breaking a hole through Simon's roof? No. Does he get mad at them for interrupting his sermon? No. Jesus loves to forgive sinners. He loves to extend compassion. He loves to have pity. So you go to Jesus. I go to Jesus, remembering that like these men, Jesus looks not for great looks, not for muscles, not for money, not for might. He looks for what? For faith. That's what those men brought. Faith. And Jesus saw it and always oh, he impressed. If we can speak of the perfect Son of God being impressed with imperfect, sinful men. Jesus loves to see faith in them, in you. He loves to forgive. And when you sin tomorrow, you come back to Jesus and he'll forgive you again. And the next day, and the day after that, and the day after that. 
He'll forgive his people. Every day we need it until we no longer need it. And you know, there is a day coming by God's grace that we will no longer need it. We will be confirmed. For us who are in Christ, we will be confirmed in glory. Not able to sin. That day is coming. But until then, we need God's forgiveness. And Jesus reminds us today, friend, that we have it in him. Of course, as we were reminded in Leviticus, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. God forgives us based upon the shed blood of the Son of God. Let us never forget that. Now, I want to close here by uh, encouraging and challenging you to commit yourself to memorizing three or four Bible passages this week or, or this month that will, if they're in our hearts, we will be... Uh, in a much better place to live each day uh, with with power in the Holy Spirit and with peace uh, in our hearts. Four verses or passages that I want us or I want to encourage you to to put uh, commit to memory. The first one is Daniel nine nine, the one that we considered today uh, already before we did our prayer of confession. Daniel 9, 9. No matter how big your sin might be, you who are in Jesus Christ, God's mercy and God's forgiveness are always bigger. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness. 1 John 1 and verse 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Colossians 1, 13 and 14. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And finally, Hebrews 9.22. And with this, we're going to close. Indeed, under the law, is under the Mosaic dispensation. Almost everything is purified with blood, as we heard in Leviticus. And without the shedding of blood, 
There is no forgiveness of sin. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things, that is, those things in the days of Moses, to be purified with these rites, that is, the blood of animals. But the heavenly things, with better sacrifices than these, For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself. Now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. He has shed his own blood that we may be forgiven and free to enter the presence of God boldly and confidently.